Lord God, Heavenly Father, you bid us to set our minds on things above, for we have been raised with Christ. And yet it is very difficult for us to do that, for our lives here consume us as we worry about finances, as we worry about health, as we worry about our society, as we face shootings in our country. There's so much here to distract us from you and your word and your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So by your Spirit, teach us what it means to set our minds on things above. We might live our lives as children in your kingdom, loving as you love, serving as you served us in in our Savior, Jesus, and trusting that even death and the grave have been conquered, that the resurrection of Christ is ours, and that we now live eternally with you. So, Lord, teach us to live each day as your dear children. And bless us as we read your word in John 4. May these words turn our hearts and our minds once again to our Savior, Jesus Christ. For in him we see you, our God, God who saves. In Jesus' name. Okay, so um, let's see. The Lord's Prayer. It's good. You should pray it. Is that what you mean? No. So the Pope decided to change the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) Isn't that fun? Um, oh, what do we say? Okay, so the Lord's Prayer, as you know, says, lead us not into temptation. And um, the Pope said that that's misleading because God doesn't lead us into temptation, which is fun because Luther's small catechism actually says that God tempts no one. Okay, so Luther actually addressed this issue in his teaching on the Lord's Prayer. At this very point, Luther noticed the same thing and said, we're not saying in this prayer that God's going to tempt us, okay, But because God tempts no one. So the Pope wanted to change the words to make it explicitly clear that um, God isn't tempting anyone. And that, that's a fine idea. God does not tempt anyone because um, he can't be tempted himself. But the problem is when you start changing the words that Jesus gave us to pray, you might be want to want to be a little careful about that. And the issue is not um, necessarily he's changing words in English. It's that the Greek word that's translated "lead us not into temptation." That's the that's how, what it says. It doesn't say help us help us to not be tempted or something like that. It's actually saying don't lead us into temptation. So what we want to understand is that um, God is leading us, right? He's leading us. And that's good. Where do you want him to lead you? Not into temptation, right? Where would you like him to lead you? Yeah, eternal life, salvation. Uh, Maybe you you want God to lead you to love your neighbor or to serve right? Or to rejoice. There's all these things we want God to lead us to. And we're saying, you know, as you lead us, it would be great if today, because I kind of stink at resisting temptation, if you would lead me somewhere else. Right? Does it make sense? So my favorite passage for this is is Psalm 23. So go, go to Psalm 23. Psalm's in the middle of the Old Testament. It's the biggest book. Most of you know it by heart, but we'll look at it because it's more fun that way. And I don't know the ESV. I always mess it up. I ended up putting King James, which is really weird. Psalm 23. 
Yeah, you all know it by heart. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? We know that. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. See, he's leading. Is he leading you in temptation? Nope. You'd ask him to not do that, to lead you into still by still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Okay? See, that's what we're asking. We're asking God, as you lead me, don't lead me into temptation. Does God ever lead anyone into temptation? He led Christ in temptation. Who else did he lead in temptation? Yeah, not really. The Bible doesn't say that he led Judas. That says Judas did that because Satan was in him. But who else did he lead in temptation? Or testing? Job. Abraham. So do you want to suffer like that? Do you want to be asked to sacrifice your own son to see if you believe in Jesus enough? No. So we're praying in this petition that he doesn't lead us in temptation and that he preserves us from all evil. So in this petition, we are acknowledging that God is leading. We want God to lead us. And we're asking him of his mercy to not lead us into temptation. Is there anything wrong with that? No, that's a good prayer. You should pray that a lot. So the problem is when we start getting kind of too clever for God and we start saying, no, 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 he couldn't have meant that. We got to clean it up for him. That's when the church gets in a lot of trouble. And we do this all the time, but um, this is kind of one where you don't mess with the Lord's prayer. Right? So I think I think the way Jesus taught us the prayer is pretty good. I'd go with Jesus' own words when his disciples say, teach us how to pray. You should not then go changing what Jesus told his disciples. And the Pope and other people would say, well, we're not changing it, we're just translating it better. But that's really not true. The, the Greek word really means don't lead us in temptation. It doesn't mean something else. What are they translating it to? Um, well, they're, trans- they're not really doing English, but yeah. the English would be, um, what's one translation I saw? Um, help us to not be tempted or help us to... They're trying to get away from God leading mm-hmm. temptation. So it's, it's some kind of change to God keep us from being tempted or keep us away from temptation. It was it, the Lord's prayer is given to us in Greek. Jesus, in Matthew six and Luke eleven. So Matthew did his original text in Greek. In Greek, the whole New Testament's written in Greek. Yep. So it's it's a Greek prayer. Um. So, yeah, the Hebrew would be you know we do have the word for lead like in Psalm twenty three, but it's the same. It means to lead somebody like you lead a sheep. Okay, so um, we just don't want to mess with stuff, and and again, the motivation I understand, but I you don't want to be changing the Lord's prayer. But but it is good to talk about what do we mean when we're asking God to lead us not into temptation. It doesn't mean that he he's wanting us to sin or he's making us sin. It's just that we're asking him to keep us from those situations that will tempt us, right? Yeah. Anywhere but here? Yeah, just anywhere but there. Um, but remember, this is the same prayer that starts starts by asking. This section of the prayer starts by asking God to give us daily bread, to forgive us our trespasses. Right. So we are asking God to do things that will affect our daily lives, 
And we're asking him that we would not starve to death, that we would be forgiven and forgive others, that we would not be tempted. These are good prayers. We want to pray these things. But I mean, original, it says, lead us not into temptation. Right. But deliver us from evil. Yeah, or the evil one. That one is actually hard to figure out what it means exactly. Um, It could be the evil one. It's not into temptation as the evil one does. Right, right. Don't let us be tempted. You could either lead it like the evil one would be tempting us or which is evil. Temptation which would lead us to evil, which is what the New Testament says, is that temptation leads to sin, which leads, you know, then you're off down the road. But being tempted itself is not a sin, right? Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted and yet was without sin. So just being tempted is not a sin. But giving into temptation is sin. Right? So that's the other side is that God, even if God does allow you to be tempted or even put you in a situation that you are tempted, it's not, it's not sin in and of itself to be tempted. Right? The sin is giving into temptation and following your will instead of God's will. That's what sin is. Well, that's where sin is. Okay? Does that make sense? So I pray that, are we acknowledging that he's already done it, or are we asking him not to? Both. Yeah, both. We're asking, but I would pray asking him not to. Like, keep me from this. Like, teach me not to be tempted. But lead me not into temptation, but lead me in places where I can do these things. And, and really, you're also implicitly acknowledging that when you are tempted, God is the one who has the power to help you overcome that. Right? Remember the whole focus of the Lord's Prayer. This is something that, that maybe we, don't, we kind of skip sometimes. The focus of the Lord's Prayer. What is, who's, the, who's doing all the positive stuff in the Lord's Prayer? God. What do you do in the Lord's Prayer? You receive it and you... There is one petition where you do something. You forgive. Right? So, God is... The point of the Lord's Prayer is to get our focus on God. First of all, to see Him who He is. He is our Heavenly Father. How is God your Father? Through His Son. Right? So... He is your Father because of His Son. So this is all focused on what Christ has done for us. Right? Yeah? And He's in heaven. And so whose will is going to be done? His, which means not yours. Right? Whose kingdom? His, not yours. Right? Who's going to provide for us every day? He is. Who forgives sins? He does. How do we live now that our sins have been forgiven? We forgive others, right? When it comes to temptation and sin, where do we look for rescue? God. Who's fighting against us in all this? Evil. Maybe the evil one even, right? So the whole point of the Lord's Prayer is to get our our focus on God being the one we look to for all the things we need. All of them. 
So at every moment when you need something, whether it be food, whether it be, you know, figure out how to live your life, whatever, your, your hope, whatever it is, all the focus is going to be on God. And the God that we're talking about is specifically the God who is Father because of His Son. Right? So that's the point of the Lord's Prayer. It's to always get our minds on God and to trust Him for all that He does for us. Okay? So that's what we want to, however you pray it, whenever you pray it, pray it that way. Okay? Any other questions or thoughts? Exactly. So then you see the two commandments in this, right? You see to love God and to love your neighbor. That's exactly right. So the way you, you do love your neighbor is by forgiving them as a result of you being forgiven. Okay? Any other questions? Okay, John 4. We are in the middle of, uh, we're actually at the very beginning of the story of John 4. Um, yeah, let's just read it and we'll, then we'll talk. So John, John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Let's read that. The Samaritan woman came to draw water, and he said to her, Can you give me a drink? The disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, Where are you doing? I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? The Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, You knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, thank you. Isn't that fun? All right, so number one, what is strange about this conversation? A Jew is talking to a Samaritan woman. Good. First problem is a Jew is talking to a Samaritan woman. What kind of Jew? A Jewish man is talking to a Samaritan woman. This is a problem. Okay? This is actually a major problem. And we talked last time about why Jews and Samaritans don't interact. And that's because Samaritans are half-breeds. They're intermarried with Assyrians and other foreign people, so they're not clean. They're unclean people. Um, and this uncleanness has gone so far as that they actually have a different temple, right? They have separated themselves from the Jewish people so much they have their own temple. And so to associate with a Samaritan is to be unclean. So now you have a Jewish man sitting at a well talking to a Samaritan woman. This ain't right. What else is strange about it? Go back to chapter 3. Go back to the very beginning of chapter 3. Probably verse 1. And two. What just who did Jesus just talk to in chapter three? Who is it? What's that? Not a Samaritan man. It's a man. A Jewish man, as a matter of fact, elite a Pharisee. Nicodemus, who is named. What's the woman's name? What's her name? How do you know her? What do you call her? 
when you refer to this story, you say Jesus and the woman at the well because well, you don't know her name. She's never named, right? What else? When did Nicodemus come? At night. Right? That's John 3. John 4, we have a woman. She's a Samaritan. She's unnamed. And it happens at noonish. We're not totally sure how John does time, so it's probably noonish, something like that. Okay? So, in the previous chapter, we have a man. Now we have a woman. We have a Jew, a leader of the Jew. Matter of fact, the teacher of the of Israel. Now we have a Samaritan. We know his name. Now we don't know her name. It's at night. Now it's at noon. Six hour. See? Yeah, six hour. So if, if six a.m. is the first hour, that's noonish. Okay? So we don't... Do you see that the way John tells these two stories... He's literally setting up a contrast between this character and this character. Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. What's common between these two things? What's the commonality that ties these two people together? Jesus. Right, and whether or not they believe. Okay? So what Jesus, what John is showing us, the way he tells the story is that who did Jesus come to save? Everybody. Right? Did he come to save, save men? Did he come to save women? Did he come to save Jews? Did he save, come to save non-Jews? Did he come to save righteous people who are walking around and they're Pharisees and they make their money by being righteous and, and right all the time? Did he come to save them? Yes. Did he come to save those who are so much out of society they have to come to the well by themselves in the middle of the day to get water because they can't associate with anybody else because they've had five husbands the one she's with now is not her husband? Did he come to save her? Can you fit somewhere in there? Right? So who did Jesus come to save? The whole world. John 3.16, right? Which is right in the middle. It's at the end of 3, right? So we're in the middle of three. So this is the savior of the world. You might have hangups about that person or that person. You might say, well, I don't associate with them and I don't but does God see him that way? Does God say I'm not going to associate with that person? No. Jesus walks up to everybody. Pharisee, Samaritan, right? All of them. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter when it is. He walks up and he brings with him the, the message and the actions of salvation. And these things are written that you too may believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life. Right? In his name. Does that make sense? So the first thing is, is it's, it's just kind of weird as far as social custom and it doesn't make any sense that a Jew would be doing this. But also, it, it is a contrast to the, the conversation he had in the previous chapter. Okay? Questions or thoughts on that? What else is weird about it or strange? He asked for water, but then he says, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me instead. It doesn't make any sense. Like all of Jesus' conversations, it doesn't make any 
sense. Can we just admit this for a second? And I know it's not pious to say this, but the Bible doesn't make any sense. Right? Most of the time when Jesus tells us stuff, we go, I don't understand what you're talking about. He tells parables and we walk in going, I know less now. Because it doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. See, Jesus does not come to make sense. He comes to reveal who God is. And God doesn't make sense to us because he's not like us. Right? All the things that you assume, all the things that you think, all the things you naturally do, God's going, yeah, it's not really the way it's supposed to go. And so when Jesus comes as God in the flesh, he talks and people go, I don't get it. I don't understand. So Jesus walks up and he goes, give me something to drink. And she goes, well, how can you talk to me? And he goes, you should have asked me for a drink. What? What are you talking about? He goes, well, I'd give you living water if you're asked. And she's like, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're saying. And we're all going, well, how could she not know? It's Jesus. (laughs) But see, you have the perspective of the death and resurrection of Jesus being the revelation of what he means in all of this. She didn't have that yet. Right? So she's thinking, you got some kind of secret way to get water out of a well? It's cool. And this water you're going to give me is water that makes me never thirst again? She's like, yeah. Saves me a trip every day. Like you can walk in your kitchen and just turn on something and water comes out? Are you crazy? Give me this living water. I'll never thirst again. No, instead we buy bottles. I don't understand that. Anyway. Okay, so there's a lot going on here and we'll see the conversation actually gets weirder before it gets better. So number two, what is the gift of God? So Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What is the gift of God? Salvation. Eternal life, spirit, salvation. <laughs> His death and resurrection. The, according to the rabbis, at this time, the rabbis used the phrase gift of God largely to refer to the Torah. What's the Torah? The first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. So they actually usually use this term to refer to the Torah. The five books of Moses. Now, if you were a Jew at this time, or a Samaritan, the Samaritans did believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, right? That was their Bible. They didn't believe the rest of it, just the first five books. So the Torah. If you were a a Jew of this time, at the time New Testament is written, you would have grown up hearing that God lives in his Torah. And if you have Torah, you have life. If you believe in the Torah of Yahweh, you have life. 
So one of the things that, one of the ways to read the entire Gospel of John is that Jesus is saying, I am the Torah. I am, listen to it, the Word of God. If you listen to the Word of God and believe it, you have life. And this is one thing that goes through the entire Gospel of John. Is they're going, well, Moses said this, and he goes, Moses? Moses? <clears throat> Moses gave you man in the wilderness. I'm the bread of life. And they're like, who do you think you are? He's like, Yahweh. I'm the one who gave the Torah to Moses. Because I am Torah. I am the word of God. See? And so they say, well, Abraham. And he goes, Abraham? And they say, well, you think you're better than Abraham? And he goes, before Abraham was? I am. See, who met with Abraham and talked to him? Jesus. Who called Abraham out of... Right? Where did, where did he live? He lived way up north up there and he called him out of that land into the promised land. Who, who did that? That's Jesus. And see, he's saying, yeah, Torah is the word of God, but it all pointed you to me. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you. Hear that? If you understand who the Torah actually is all about. And, they, and she would say, and all good Jews would say, it's really about the coming Messiah. And he would say, yes. And if you understood who it is that is talking to you, meaning he's the Messiah, then you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. See, so he's actually telling her, this is the point of all of this, is that I'm the, I'm the word of God, I'm the promises, I'm the point of all God's prophecies. I'm all of it. Okay? Now, the other part of the gift of God is that the other way to talk about is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was also seen as a gift of God. And again, in the Gospel of John, he says that he will give out God's Spirit. That Jesus will pour out the Spirit of God. That he's the source of God's spirit. If you want to enter the kingdom of God in chapter 3, water and the spirit. Now all of a sudden we're sitting in a well and talking about the spirit. Yeah, there's water at the well. So we have water and spirit. In John 3, water and spirit. In John 7, the spirit will well up in you like a spring of eternal life. Again, water and spirit. Okay, In the upper room, Jesus washes the disciples' feet using water, and then he teaches them about the coming of the Spirit. Water, Spirit. Have you had anything happen to you in your life where you got wet and received the Holy Spirit? Okay, now we have holy baptism. Okay, so this whole thing is, in a, in a really big way, a text about baptism. There is a living water 
right? There is a living water that gives you spirit. There is a living water that gives you life. Holy baptism. What does Peter say in Acts chapter 2? If you're baptized, what do you get? Forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. Right? Okay. Any other thoughts on that? This was tying back to the Israelites in the wilderness. Moses was told to speak to the rock. And what happened? Well, he hit the rock. He whacked it. It's not good. Well, the second time he whacked it. The first time he was told to whack it, and it was good. The second time he was told not to whack it, and he did. And that got him out of the promised land. But just the the, the living water coming from the rock. Fine. Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If we must, Roger. First Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 4, really, 1 through 4. First Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 4. See if Roger knows what he's talking about. We'll check. First Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 4. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Isn't that amazing? Paul has learned from Roger. (laughs) (laughs) But see, that's exactly right. When you start putting all this together, what do you get? You're like, oh wait, it's there. It's there. It's there and there and there. And Paul actually says, isn't this an amazing interpretation of the Old Testament? Paul says, the rock that Moses whacked, that water came from, that rock was Christ. It was Jesus. What? And they were baptized into Moses. They were all under the spiritual cloud. See, all this language is saying the Torah all is pointing us ahead to Jesus Christ And the way that we receive Jesus Christ is through holy baptism. That's one of the ways that we're given to receive Jesus, right? Because what's active in baptism? Is it the water? No. Is it the pastor? No. Is it all us holy people watching? No. What's the power in baptism? The word of God. The word of God. Now, what's Jesus' name in the Gospel of John? The Word of God. Okay? So the power of your baptism is because God made promises and all the promises of God are kept in Christ. You can trust that. Come what may. Right? Nothing can change the promises of God. Nothing. Even you. Right? Is that what you're getting at? Everything else is vanity. Everything else is vanity. (laughs) We heard that today. (laughs) Everything else is vanity. No matter what you try, it's vanity. 
Yeah, we're not gonna talk about that. <laughs> okay, so number three. So what is the proper response to Jesus' words? What's that? Give me living water. Yeah, right. So the proper response to Jesus is to ask him for what he gives. What's the highest form of worship? How do you worship Jesus? Obedience is one way, but we often stink at that. That is one way to worship him, but that's what's the highest form of obedience of worship? Don't don't change what you just said. Ask him for what he gives. What does he give? Forgiveness and eternal life. So how do you worship Jesus? You trust in no one else. No one else. You trust in him alone to forgive your sins and give you eternal life. Right? Doesn't that sound like a commandment? One of the commandments? I don't know. Like maybe the first one? Yeah. And then now that you have the name of Jesus, do you use that name to curse? No. What do you do? You call upon it every prayer. Pray, praise, and give thanks because that's the name that saves you. See, this is how we, we go to Jesus. We say, you said you're going to forgive my sins. Well, here's the deal. I got a truckload of sins. I'm not going to go to anybody else with them. I'm going to go right to Jesus and say, give me what you promised to give. Please, because of your death and resurrection, I'm going to trust that you're my Savior. Forgive my sins. That's worshiping God. To believe that he is who he says he is. That he's the one you go to with your sins. He's the one you go to. When death is knocking, how do you fight it? You look to Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, our reading for today. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's where you live. You live with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, or when He appears, Christ who is your life, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Right? So the whole idea is to to get our minds on Christ. And the highest form of worship that we have is to believe that Jesus is who He says He is. Take Him at His word. Trust Him. That's worship. It's not worship is not telling him who he is, it's believing who he is. Let him be the one who saves you, no one else. Don't look for anything else or anyone else to be your savior. Christ alone. That's worship. And that's what he's saying here. If you understood all this, you would ask. Right? So ask. Matter of fact, Paul says, ask without stopping. Never stop asking. We say it more piously. We say pray without ceasing. But the word pray is really just ask. So never stop asking God. Never stop. I guarantee if you ask God for everything, you will never run out of things to ask him for. Because if you're living like me, Pretty much every second of every day brings up another thing you could ask help for, right? I could help with that. I could use some little help with that. Are you ever going to run out of things to ask for for the people you love? (laughs) Not if you're a parent. 
or a spouse or a child or a cousin or an aunt, right? You're never going to run out of things to ask for. So that's the point is the proper response to Jesus is to trust that he is God, trust that he is the Savior, and live that way. Are there any other gods you guys can think of that is better than Jesus? Then why are you worshiping them? Is yourself more important than Jesus? Is it? Are you more important than God? Then why do you live like you're God and He's not? Is that worshiping Jesus to say, oh, I got this. I'm going to do what I want to do. Is that worshiping Jesus? Is that being a Christian? So stop it. Stop. Stop believing you're God. Believe that Jesus is God. It's not that hard. Yeah. Right? <laughs> now we're back to saying, Jesus, I kind of messed this up. Please help me, right? Give me what you promised, which is forgiveness. And this is what we do when we confess our sins. We come before Jesus. We say, I know the right answer. I kind of can't do it. I'm not very good at this. I stink. Help. Forgive me. Now teach me how to do it. Yeah, teach me how, right? Teach me how to live for it. Okay, any other questions on that? Okay, let's read the next section. Let's read 11 through 15. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drink from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Thank you. All right. Isn't that fun? All right. So number number four. Is Jesus greater than Jacob? No stinking way. Right? She's thinking, I got you on this one. This is Jacob's well, and he's as good as it gets, right? Who's Jacob? We just did Genesis. Who's who's Jacob? He's a patriarch, right? If you want to win an argument, you invoke a patriarch. Right? Like like Lutherans. If we want to argue, we invoke Luther. Everybody's like, I can't argue with that. Well, if you're a Jew or a Samaritan and you're reading the Torah and you want to win an argument, you invoke Jacob. Right? And you go, this is Jacob's well. You think you're better than Jacob? And the expectant answer is, no. What does Jesus say? Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, What? See, this is what I'm telling you. It just keeps happening in the Gospel of John. They're like, what, you think you're better than Moses? And he goes, yeah, I am. What? Seriously? You're nothing. You're just a guy. If you you knew who I was, if you knew who I was, you would trust in me and I would give you life. Can Jacob give life? No. No. Right? She's talking to the one who gave Jacob life. 
She's talking to the one who called Jacob to be a patriarch. But here's the other thing you got to understand is that Jacob, now this is kind of fun. Jacob, if you read the Old Testament, we talked about this when we did Genesis. In, in many passages, Jacob is described as physically Superman. He can lift rocks. He can do things that humans can't do. And according to rabbinic history, it's, re, it's recorded in what's called the Targum or Targum meme. Um, according to the Targum meme, Jacob had five feats of strength. You ever heard this legend? In Greek mythology, there's a guy who has five feats of strength. He's known for being really strong. His name is... What? Hercules. Right? Hercules might have been based on a guy who lived, I don't know, thousands of years before that was all made up. A mighty man who had five feats of strength. His name was... Jacob. Isn't that amazing? Anyway... In the Targum, Jacob had five feats of strength. His fourth feat was that he was able to make all of his wells overflow so that you no longer had to dip into the well, but when you walked up, the water would just flow all over the place and you could drink water without drawing from it, drawing from the well. That was his fourth feat of strength that Jacob did to show that he was a man of God, according to the Targum. It's not in the Bible, but this was kind of the legend that grew up around Jacob. Okay, so there is a possibility that she is saying, are you invoking Jacob's feats and you're going to somehow conjure up this living water that reminds us of our father Jacob and his amazing, miraculous feats? Okay, there is some evidence that that could be what she's referring to. So again, there's five, he does five feats of strength, and the fourth one is that all of his wells that he gave would overflow. They'd just flow with water all over the place. Which, remember, when you don't have running water, and you have to go every day to a well and lower a bucket and then pull it back up, to just have the water flowing would be really great. It really would be great. Okay? So this is, this is possibly what, what she is referring to. Okay, the other issue is remember that the Samaritans looked at Jacob as their founding father. Jacob is the founding father of the Samaritans because after he came back from Laban with his four, well, two wives, two concubines, and 13 kids, right? 12 boys and one girl. Don't know her name, but someone was in the kitchen with her. Um, yeah, thank you. Never gets old, does it? When he comes back, they live in this area. That's where they live and, and establish their little kingdom before they get back to living with Abraham, or with Isaac, I mean. Okay? So this, this whole movement is, can Jesus offer something that Jacob can't offer? Number five, what is Jesus offering the woman? Eternal life. He's actually offering her eternal life life. Now, go to Isaiah chapter 55. Since Roger always spoiled the water in the Torah that I was going to go to, we'll go to Isaiah.
Isaiah 55. Beginning at the first chapter. Only the first verse. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through... I don't know. It's always it's hard to know when to stop. We'll just go 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Okay, now, do you hear that? You're going to come, and you're going to, if you're thirsty, what's, what's the way to satisfy your thirst? No! What does he say? The end of verse 2 and all of 3. Listen. Listen to me. And that way you eat which is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to me. Hear that your soul may live. This is something we're going to hear throughout the rest of the Gospel of John is that the food of God is the word of God. Right? If you want to eat and be satisfied, what do you do? Listen to the word of God. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, here's the thing. I know you guys are worried about all kinds of stuff. You're worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. I understand. Everybody's worried about that kind of stuff. But look at the Look at the birds. They're just flying around, chirping. they got no brains. Are they worried about that kind of stuff? No. Why? God takes care of them. What are the flowers? They literally don't have a brain. Yet they're dressed. Matter of fact, you look at flowers and you give them to your wife because they're so pretty. Right? He's like, they're not worried what they're going to wear. Doesn't God care about you? Don't you believe that God cares about you? So if you order what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear, what should you do? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will add to you. Well, how do we understand the kingdom of God? How do we seek the kingdom of God? What do you do? Do you go in your, in your room, close your eyes and meditate? No. What do you do? You read the word of God. You listen to the word of God. You believe the word of God, right? See, here's the thing. The answer to your thirst is to listen. The answer to your hunger pains is to have donut. No, that's not. It's, it's to read the word of God, right? Now, do you get to have a steak occasionally? And on a really good day have pizza? Yes. Is that what keeps you alive? No. It's a gift of God. Give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. We'll get there in John 6, right? I am the bread of life. So this whole idea of living water, Jesus is actually reminding, 
reminding this woman of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, remember, I told you, it's been months now because it was in John chapter 1, so it's been months ago, that John is going to remind us of the Torah, especially the book of Exodus and the whole Exodus event, which means I'm getting out of Egypt, through Isaiah as fulfilled in Jesus. That's kind of what he's doing in this text. Is he saying, you know the story of Torah. Isaiah talked about Torah again, but he talked about it in terms of exile and being freed from exile because of your idolatry. Now, Isaiah pointed ahead to a suffering servant who would save God's people from their sin using the same imagery of the Exodus. Now, Jesus is the one that Isaiah talked about while he was interpreting Moses. Isn't that crazy? I know it's hard to keep track of, but that's actually what's happening here. We actually see this, that Isaiah 55, right, is going back to the events that happened after the exodus of they were wandering in the desert. And, and John is saying all of this is actually fulfilled in Jesus. And the way Jesus is going to fulfill all of that is through his death. All of this is actually pointing to the death of Jesus on a cross. Right? That's the gospel of John. And he's saying to the Samaritan woman, this is all for you. And I'm here to give it to you. Okay? She she doesn't get it. So good. I'm glad you brought that up because I meant to say it earlier. And that's, well, we'll do number six. What does she think he is offering? Yeah, some kind of water that lives. So, um, living water in a physical way meant water that wasn't stagnant, so you could drink from it, one without getting sick, or it meant literally running water, water that was moving, so a spring, perhaps, that didn't dry up, or something, which this well was actually fed by a natural spring, but again, she had to somehow get it. So she's probably picturing some kind of water that either has supernatural powers, so you drink it once, you don't have to come back for days, or it's actually flowing water somewhere that she can get to without having to go to a well. Okay? But she's totally thinking in earthly terms, which is exactly what Nicodemus did in chapter 3, because he says, here's the thing, by water and the Spirit, you'll be born again. And he goes, what am I, supposed to crawl back into my mom's womb? And Jesus goes, oh. Right? Well, same thing here. He's like, I'm here to give you eternal life. It'll well up in you for eternal life. Living water. She goes, that's great. So I don't come out to the well anymore. And he goes, oh. So the women go to the tomb the Sunday after the death of Jesus. It's Sunday morning. They rested Saturday because it was Sabbath. After the Sabbath was over on Saturday evening, went and bought spices, but they couldn't go to the tomb because it was dark. And you don't go to the tomb in the dark if you're women because you'll be beaten or worse, right? So they wait till the very morning of Sunday. They get up early as they can on Sunday and run to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body for burial because they did it really hastily on Friday because the Sabbath was coming. And they go there and their eyes are going. They're like, hey, um, we got all the spices. Who's going to roll the stone away? Because it's kind of big. 
right? As they're, as they're going to the tomb, and they're like, I don't know, maybe the Roman guards or something. I guess that's what they figured. So they get there, and the stone has already been rolled away, and the tomb is empty. And they do not say, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. What do they say? <coughs> what is this? Where is the body of Jesus? Because they had no perspective of the resurrection yet. Yet. Right? They didn't understand because the Holy Spirit had not revealed it to them what was happening here. And this is exactly what happens with all these people that encounter Jesus is they don't yet understand the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says things, they're interpreting it like just everything they've ever learned. And he's saying stuff and, and she's like, I, I guess you're offering better water than the well usually gives us? Great! It's an upgrade, right? It's Jacob's well 2.0. We'll take it. But he's offering so much more, as you know. Okay? So she just doesn't get it. And this really is a perspective. It's, it's really funny. Um, let's see. Yeah, this, it's the next chapter. Let's just go look really fast. You'll, we're spoiling it, but it'll be like six months till we get there anyway. So, John chapter 5. This is just absolutely hilarious. Um, just So it's the, it's the healing at the pool, right? Where the, the guy has been invalid forever and Jesus walks up. So look at, look at chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. Jesus saw him lying there and knew they had already been there a long time and said to him, Do you want to be healed? And look at the guy's response. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. What, what do you mean you don't have anybody? Jesus is actually asking you if you want to be saved. You could perhaps ask him. But what's this guy's perspective? What's his perspective? There's no reason to ask because nothing's ever going to change. So I've just stopped praying. I've been praying and praying and praying and praying and nothing changes, so I just stopped. And Jesus is standing there going, would you like to be healed? And he goes, what's the point of even asking? Of course I do, but I've given up. It's not going to happen. Right? Because from our perspective, that's our perspective. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He said, here's the thing. I have a thorn in my flesh to keep me from, from being ex- exceedingly arrogant because of my surpassingly great revelations. So I prayed, because he's Paul the Apostle, he prays. He said, God, take it away from me. And God said, no. Three times he prayed. God said, no. And when, just when Paul was about ready to give up, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And what does Paul say? Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then Christ is strong. This is the guy in Philippians 4.13 who said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What are the all things he can do? He can be content, whether rich or poor. Whatever situation he faces, he can be content because the grace of God is sufficient for him. We don't give up on our prayers just because our circumstances don't look like they're ever going to change. We keep trusting that God will grant us his grace. If you have to pray every day, pray every day. It might be years 
Okay, just keep asking God. He is faithful to his promises. Trust in Christ, right? So this is the whole point. Is our perspective, even, even with the Holy Spirit, even with the death and resurrection of Jesus, we still don't see the perspective of God. So we just keep praying and trusting in him. All right, we got to go. Uh, it's time for church. So next week we'll um, talk more about the well and we'll get into weird conversation. We did pretty well. It's pretty good. Yeah. Okay, so Wednesday night we'll do Acts. Come Wednesday we'll do Acts at 7. Let's pray. Lord, we don't even always know what to ask, but you bid us to come and pray. So we come before you trusting that you are our God and our Savior, that you love us, and that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can always trust in you to be a God who's on our side. So teach us to live our lives as your children, trusting in you, loving those around us, and rejoicing that we are loved. In Jesus' name. Thank you all.